The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may, as one family and in one place, give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, you're either here late or you're here early. I don't know what it is, but some of, for whatever reason, um, somebody just came up to me and said, are you telling me that it really is daylight savings time? And I said, yes. They said, well, my watch just updated automatically and, and woke me up this morning. So sometimes that happens. But yes, some of us are suffering from sleep deprivation. Um, the one who's speaking to you included, but... We shall press on. We're in John chapter 6, and we're going to begin today at verse 22. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open it up to John chapter 6. We'll begin at verse 22, and we'll read through uh, verse 37. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, again, just a little bit of background, a little bit of review so that we have this text in its proper perspective. You'll recall that Jesus had performed one of his greatest miracles. John's gospel refers to them as signs, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this was one of the Lord's greatest miracles. In fact, we pointed out that this was the only miracle that Jesus performed over the course of his three-year ministry, which is recorded in all four of the gospels. 
the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as John. And that is this feeding of the multitude. Now, sometimes we refer to it as the feeding of the 5,000. Actually, if you read the text closely, uh, you discover that there may have been more than 5,000 people. We're told that there were 5,000 men. Um, that makes no mention whatsoever of women or children. At any rate, it was an extraordinary miracle. Uh, that's why all four Gospels record it. It was extraordinary because, of course, these were people that were living in an agrarian culture. And food was in short supply in those days. I pointed out that if you were a farmer, and most people in those days were, if you were a farmer, and if you only had your own little garden, any sort of blight that came upon your crops could destroy your community immediately. Or if there was any kind of pest, locusts, or whatever it may be, it would wipe out an entire community because the people would literally, quite literally, starve to death. So when Jesus performed this miracle, of course, it was awe-inspiring to the crowds because here was a man who could take such meager supplies and multiply them and feed everybody. And so they were in awe of that. Well, after Jesus had performed this miracle and we're told that they had gathered up all the leftovers, he sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, sent them across to Capernaum. It's only John's gospel, incidentally, that tells us where they were going. But he sends them across to Capernaum while he goes up on the mountainside to pray, which was Jesus' habit. Recall that he had come to this lonely place where all these people were. There, were, there was no ready supply of food because he wanted to escape the crowds. He needed a break from them. And now he's more popular than ever as a result of doing this. They want to forcibly make him a king. So Jesus needs a little bit of R&R. Sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on the mountain to pray. While he's up there, however, he sees that they are caught in a storm. And we talked about storms on the Sea of Galilee. They were not unusual in those days, given the unique geographical location. Um, storms often would arise quickly, unexpectedly, and they could be terrifying and dangerous. And the disciples, were told, were caught in a storm. It was probably a terrible windstorm. They were rowing hard. They were making no progress. And Jesus came to them. He came to their rescue. And he came, we're told, walking on the water. Now, I pointed out that for some people, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, those in the more liberal camp would try to explain this away saying that, well, Jesus was walking on the water, but that's only because he knew where the stumps were, or Jesus was walking by the sea and it was choppy and so forth, and as a consequence, it appeared as though he was walking on the sea, but he was really not doing that. Nothing in the text indicates that, and I've said to you before that if you have a problem with the supernatural, you're going to have a problem with Christianity in general. But if you step back for a moment and actually look at it, it's really not all that difficult to take in. If God can create the world, and there's a great deal of evidence from science today, perhaps now more than at any point in history, that this universe did not always exist. It was not in a steady state. There was what we call Big Bang cosmology. There was a time when there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was a time when there was something. Well, that sounds remarkably similar to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God said, and bang, there it was. So if you can believe that a God can create the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer power of his word, come on, folks, feeding 5,000 people, walking on the water, raising someone from the dead, that's child's play to such a God. So let's put it in its proper perspective. At any rate, we're told that when Jesus got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, the people certainly were astonished by the fact that he was over there. 
Because they got up the next morning, and while they had been satisfied physically the night before, they were hungry the next morning. And this was still a lonely place. There was still no Publix. There was still no Harris Teeter in which to go and buy food. So they came looking for Jesus, naturally. And they couldn't find him. Now, they knew that the disciples got into the boat and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They'd seen that happen, but Jesus hadn't. He'd gone up on the mountainside to pray. Now they come looking for Jesus. There have been boats that have been driven in from the storm that night, but Jesus is nowhere to be found. And somebody concludes he must have. I don't know how, but he must have gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We must have missed it. No doubt they were scratching their heads and wondering how in the world did he do that in the midst of the storm, but nevertheless, he must have. And so we're told they got into boats and went to the other side of the sea, and sure enough, they found him. And what was the first question they asked? It was the natural question. How did you get here? They could never have imagined that he walked across the Sea of Galilee. How in the world did you get here? But it's really interesting to see Jesus' response to that. Uh, Jesus doesn't explain himself to them. It's very much, I said last week, like Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, here's what I know. I know that you're a great man who's come from God because no one could do the signs that you were doing unless God were with him. You would have expected Jesus to say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. That's quite a compliment coming from you. You're a, you're a Pharisee. You're a member of the Sanhedrin and so forth. Instead, Jesus cuts right to the chase. Cuts right through it all, and he says, I tell you the truth, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's just get right down to it, Nicodemus. I know why you're here, and I know what you want, and let's not play games with each other. Well, he does something very similar here with the people. They ask him, how in the world did you come here? It's in verse 25. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for that food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus said, let's not play games. I know why you're looking for me. You're looking for me, not because you saw me do extraordinary things, although you were awed by that, he said, you're looking for me because, as I said last week, I'm a one-man S&S cafeteria. I can take five loaves of bread, I can take two small fish, and I can feed you, and you're here because your bellies were filled last night, and now you're hungry again. It's breakfast. And Jesus cuts right through it. He said, but do not work for that food that doesn't last. I mean, that was the whole point, wasn't it? He had satisfied them the night before to such a degree that they could eat no more. It was like Thanksgiving. They had pushed themselves back from the table and said, I'm stuffed. I can't eat another bite. They, kept, they collected 12 baskets full that were left over. But I pointed out, you know, Thanksgiving is like that. You, you, you eat, you can't eat another bite, and in three hours you're pulling the leftovers out of the refrigerator and putting them in the microwave and eating another meal again. How is that possible? But it is. And that's the way it was for these people. But Jesus says that's not the bread that's going to satisfy. There is an interesting passage in the book of Amos. The prophet Amos is talking about a time of great difficulty in the land of Israel. 
He said there was going to come a famine upon the land. And of course, famines in the ancient world, because, as I said, this was an agrarian culture, famines were often seen as discipline from God, as a kind of divine punishment. It's no mistake that Jesus taught his disciples to say, give us this day our daily bread, because it was a matter of day-to-day living. Well, there's this passage in the book of Amos in which the prophet Amos says God is going to bring punishment upon the people because of their wickedness. It is a kind of discipline. And it's going to be a famine. But it's not going to be a famine for food. He said the time is coming when there will be a famine for the word of God. When no prophet will be heard in the land, no preacher to proclaim the word, The people will go out, they may be filled physically, but they will be starving spiritually. Well, there is a sense in which Jesus was warning the people about that. He said, you're looking for physical food, but there is one in your midst who can give you spiritual food, which will nourish your souls for eternity. That is what you should be longing for. Now, it's clear from the next response that comes from the people that they didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about, or or they ignored what he was saying and still were focusing on the physical. I said that these were Jews who were from Missouri. What is Missouri? What, what's, the, what's the state? The show me state. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what these Jews were saying. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so you say you can satisfy us. We'll never go hungry again. We'll never go thirsty again. Fine, show us. Prove it. Now, if you think about it, that was an extremely arrogant thing to say to Jesus because he had just shown them. I mean, one of the reasons why those huge crowds of 5,000 were following Jesus, one of the reasons why he was able to feed that vast multitude is because they had seen sign after sign after sign. They had been enamored by his miracles. That's why they found him. And, of course, he had just fed them in this greatest of all miracles. What more could they possibly have wanted? You know, sometimes we're like that, aren't we? God moves in our life. We see evidence of his action in our life. But the next time that a crisis comes or the next time we feel some sort of hunger pang, we're saying, all right, Lord, I know you can help me, but you better prove it. See, that's not real trust, is it? Christian faith is not credulity. It's not just hope against hope. It's not believing in spite of the absence of evidence. It is believing on the basis of evidence But what happens is that oftentimes we forget the evidence. We forget what God has done in the past. And in times of crisis, we panic and we become arrogant like these people and they say, well, prove it to us. Now, probably behind their question is the fact that there were some passages in the Old Testament that led people to believe that just as Moses had provided manna in the wilderness... When the Messiah appeared in the last days, he was going to provide them with manna as well. There are several references, for example, in the Midrash. You know what the Midrash is? 
Now, the Midrash was an ancient commentary on the Old Testament. So if you've been in my office, in my study, you'll notice that I have hundreds and hundreds of books. And many of those books are commentaries on biblical books. So I probably got, just on John's Gospel alone, I probably got 20 or 30 commentaries just on the Gospel of John. Well, the Jews had commentaries on the Old Testament books as well, and this was called the Midrash. And in one of these commentaries on the book of Exodus, it talks about the fact that in the last days, when the Messiah appeared, he would provide them with manna, just as Moses had provided them with manna when they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, what they were thinking, of course, is that what Moses was going to do was supply that for them. So the new Messiah would do the same thing. He would supply them with manna. And because Moses had supplied that with them on a daily basis, they expected that that's what the Messiah was going to do as well. All right, Jesus had performed this miracle. He had shown that he could multiply fish and loaves and feed the multitude. Maybe he was the Messiah, but if he was the Messiah, he needed to prove that he could do it like Moses did it, and that is daily. Daily. Show us. Give us a sign. Show us that you can do this and do it for us daily. But look at Jesus' response to this. It's very important. Jesus reminds them, first of all, that it was not Moses who provided them with manna. It was God who had provided them with manna. It was God that had rained down manna every morning. It was not Moses. Moses may have interceded on behalf of the people, but it was God who provided. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. It is God who provides manna, not a mere man. And God has done that again. He says, for I am the bread of of heaven. I am the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the beginning of what are known as the I am statements in John's gospel. I've pointed out to you before that John has a number of unique features in it. For example, John only records seven miracles of Jesus. Only seven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a whole plethora of miracles, but John only records seven. Now, he tells us why. I mean, he doesn't leave us in the dark. Toward the end of his gospel, at the very end of his gospel, in fact, I'm going to talk about this in the sermon next week, but at the very end of the gospel, John acknowledges the fact that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book. In fact, he said Jesus did so many things that if the world were to write them down, it could not contain the volumes. But he has chosen seven specifically. Seven miracles. That's all you get in John's gospel. Likewise, you get seven of these unique sayings of Jesus. They are called the I am statements. And Justin is going to make reference to them in his sermon today. Or those of you who have already been to the 815 service, you heard him talk about this. But these I am statements are very important in John's gospel. And important to John's message to his readers. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when God saw that the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, they were struggling, you know, they were 
slaves for over 430 years, forced to make bricks without straw. They lived in an oppressive environment, literally under the lash, and they had been crying out for centuries, and God heard their cry, we're told, and determined to liberate them. This, of course, is all about the exodus, the exodus, the Passover, all of that sort of thing. You know that God delivered his people by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. But the way he did that was by raising up this champion named Moses. And he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Remember the story? Moses is up on the mountain. He's tending the flocks, not paying much attention. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he sees this bush that just spontaneously combusts. If you read the story in Exodus, it's really interesting. This, this bush, out of nowhere, just erupts into flame. And the text says, And Moses said to himself, I shall go over there and see why it is that this bush has suddenly burst into... Now, you know that's the sanitized version. You, you know that when, when that happened, Moses is thinking, What? Maybe he said something he shouldn't have said. I don't know. But at any rate, he went over there to see what this was all about. And as he approached, what was even more extraordinary was that a voice came out of the bush saying, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. You are on holy ground. Maybe I've told you this story before years ago when I was at um, Virginia Seminary. When I first arrived there as a new student, um, it's in Alexandria, Virginia, for those of you who don't know where the seminary is located. It was founded in 1823, so it's an old seminary. And um, for the first year, your job as a seminarian is to go and find a fieldwork parish, you know, some place where you can serve over the course of the next three years. And so for the first semester, you're allowed to go around and visit different churches and so forth. And so my first Sunday, I knew exactly where I was going to go. I was going to go to Christ Church in Old Town, Alexandria, which is this old colonial church, which was the home church of George Washington and Robert E. Lee. Now, some of you know, I'm a big fan of both of those men. I know they've fallen on hard times. I don't care. I still think they're rather extraordinary individuals. So I get down there, but I had a hard time finding a parking space. And when I get there to Christ Church, I, I'm, I'm late. I'm late. And I get in there. And I, the usher takes me to a pew, and it was not the pew I wanted because I knew there was a pew over there on the right-hand side. had a silver plaque. Robert E. Lee worshipped here every Sunday, and I'm like, ah, now, I should have been concentrating on the Lord Jesus, but I'm having a hard time concentrating because I can see this person over there, and they could care less that they're in Lee's pew, but I wanted to be in Lee's pew. So I didn't think anything, you know, I just, I made it through the service. I concentrated on what I needed to concentrate on, and I said, Lord, please forgive me. I went up to receive communion, and when I knelt down at the altar rail, spot came open, I went up, I knelt down at the altar rail, and there was, as I held my hands up in the posture of a beggar and looked down there at the rail with my head bowed. There was a silver plaque that said, on this spot, Robert E. Lee was confirmed by the right Reverend John Johns. And I heard distinctly, take off your shoes, you are on holy ground. <laughs> well, you recall, no, I did not take off my shoes. 
Well, that's what happened to Moses. He, he's on holy ground. He's told to take off his shoes, take off his sandals, and, and he does. And God spoke to him and said, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you are to tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let my people go. Now, Moses was a realist. He realized the challenge that he was facing, and so he, he said, now, Lord, that's all well and good. I mean, if you want me to go, I'll go. But as much as I'm afraid of Pharaoh, I'm afraid of your people. Because I'm going to go to them, this, 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 this man who's got a stutter, and I, I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to say to them, God is determined to set you free. And they're going to say, God, where's he been for the past 430 years? What God? And Moses said, you've got to give me a name. What, what, what name shall I tell them? What is the name of their God? I mean, the Egyptians had a multiplicity of gods, Anubis and others and so forth. And he said, what am I supposed to say? And you'll recall that God said, you tell them, I am who I am. That's all God said. I am. See, the best that any of us can say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. But God simply says, I am. And that was the sacred name for God. Theologians refer to it as the tetragrammaton, the sacred name for God, the name which cannot be spoken because it is so sacred. The one who is self-sufficient, I am. And what's so extraordinary is that John records Seven occasions in his gospel when Jesus invokes that sacred name for God in reference to himself. Now that was an extraordinary claim, you understand. Most Jews, even hearing the name, somebody speaking the name out loud would have stopped their ears. You can't say that name. You can't speak that name. When they came upon the name of God in the Old Testament... A scribe had to literally go, take off all of his clothes, and wash his entire body before he came back and continued to write down the text. He didn't speak the name of God. It was too holy to be spoken, and here is Jesus speaking it over and over again. As I said, seven I am statements. And everybody knew that when Jesus says these statements, he is saying more than just, I am this thing or that thing. He is making a claim to divinity. This is the first of them. I am the bread of life. The others are, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am. God is the light of the world. God is the bread of life. I am the gate. God is the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. I am the true vine. Now, understand, nobody was in any confusion as to what Jesus meant by those statements because the Jewish religious leaders, whenever he said these sorts of things, wanted to kill him. But he does it seven times, and this is the first of them. I am the bread of life. 
Obviously, it was a statement about himself. Jesus was making a statement about himself, but he was also making a statement about us. He was saying to the people, look, I know that you're hungry, you're physically hungry, but even if I were to feed you physically, you're going to be hungry again. He said, I am the true bread. Now, understand the significance of bread in the first century. You have to put this in its context. Understand how important bread was in the first century. And when you begin to understand that it was a staple of most people's diet. You know, we are so accustomed to having all sorts of food. We, we get so easily tired of the same thing day after day, day after day. We've, we've got to have variety. I'm reminded of an occasion when I was having dinner with Bishop Michael Nazarali, a great um, bishop in the Church of England. He has since converted to Catholicism, but uh, a dear friend of mine, but one of the great, great scholars of our age. And uh, he was here in the United States, and we're having dinner together, and I took him out to a restaurant, and it was a restaurant that had the most extensive menu that I knew. And I thought, well, this, this is going to be a good thing. I mean, you know, you, you could choose anything you want. And this is one of the great scholars. This is a guy who has two earned doctorates. He was a bishop of Rochester, a member of the British House of Lords. Just an extraordinary individual. And we're sitting there, and he's, he's telling me something. And he, he's very animated, and he's very intense, and up comes the waiter. You ever been there when you're in a conversation, and the waiter comes and interrupts you? They're just standing there sort of waiting. Finally, you're like, yes, can I help you? Yes, well, are you ready to take your drink order? Well, okay, okay. And so, you know, he says to Bishop Nazarali, he said, what would you like to drink? And he said, um, I'll have a cup of tea, thank you. And he said, do you want sweet tea or unsweetened tea? And, um, and, and he says, uh, just put the sweetener on the side, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put it in. And, and I said, well, do you want, I think what he's asking you is, do you, he's suggesting iced tea. Do you want hot tea? Oh, yes, yes, it's hot tea. No, I don't want iced tea. No, 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 I want hot tea. So, so now it's hot tea. I'll put the sweetener in myself. Later on, he comes back and he says, um, uh, what would you like as your first course? And he says, um, I'll just have a salad, thank you. Would you like a garden salad? Would you like a Caesar salad? Uh, no, I'll just have a garden salad, thank you. I'll just have a garden salad. Would you like blue cheese dressing? Would you like... And finally, when he got the order out, he turned to me and he goes, see, this is the problem. Too many choices. Too many choices. There were no choices in the first century. No choices for these people. It was bread. And if you didn't get it, you died. It's as simple as that. That's what people ate. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, well, what about gluten-free? And what about, you know, all the issues they have? It existed, I'm told, that the Greeks understood that sort of thing. But the reality is nobody was diagnosed with celiac disease until the 20th century. It's as simple as that. So when you realize how important bread was, and Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, there is a famine in the land, and you need bread, and I've got what you have. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying at least four things that are very important for you and for me. First of all, he's saying that bread is essential for life. When he says, I'm the bread of life, what he is saying is that for you and for me, he is essential for our life. Without Jesus Christ... You are going to perish. 
Bread is the staple for these people. It should be the staple for us. Bread was suited for everybody in the first century. Everybody ate it. Children, of course, had milk from a very young age, but then when they were able to eat anything solid, what they normally ate was bread. It was uniquely suited for everyone, and that's what Jesus is saying. I have come for everyone. For the high and the low, the educated and the ignorant, what I provide is for everyone. Bread was the daily diet. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to say, give us this day our daily bread. Now, of course, in that prayer, Jesus is referring to physical nourishment. We oftentimes worry about our physical needs more than anything else. And Jesus' point to his disciples is that God will supply your physical needs. And Jesus often met their physical needs before he could meet their spiritual needs. That's why he fed those people with the fish and the loaves, 5,000. But Jesus never stopped there because he knew that he could feed them physically and they could be satisfied, but eventually they were going to die, and if their souls were malnourished, they would perish forever. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he means that if you are going to be strong, if you are going to be healthy, you need to feed on me daily. So I'm essential for your life, Jesus said. I'm uniquely suited for every single one of you, no matter who you are. You need me daily. Let me ask you that question today. You be honest with yourself. You don't have to blurt out an answer. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But do you feed on Jesus Christ daily? Now, I think it's wonderful that you come to Bible study here on Sunday morning and listen to me. It is, I think for my wife, uh, an extraordinary mystery that you should come and want to listen to me talk all the time. And it's wonderful if you come on Thursday, and it's wonderful if you come on Sunday and you hear the preacher from the pulpit. But let me just ask you a question. If you only ate a meal twice a week or three times a week, what kind of condition would you be in? Well, if you only feed on Jesus Christ two or three times a week, let me ask you the question, what kind of state do you think you are in spiritually? So Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, he said, I am the bread which you need every single day. You need to feed on me every single day, and you need to do that if you are going to be what? Healthy and strong. You know, one of the problems that we face in the world today, if you were at the annual meeting a week ago, I talked about being salt and light in the world, and I said that one of the things that we notice is that our world is becoming increasingly dark and corrupt. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that. You could turn on CNN or Fox News or NBC, ABC, CBS, whatever it is, and you can see how increasingly dark the world is becoming. And we are called to be salt and light in that environment. We are called to stem the tide of decay and shine a light in the bleakness. But why does it appear as though the world seems to be getting darker and darker no matter what? I can tell you why. It's because the church is weak. It's because the church of Jesus Christ in most parts of the world today, especially in the Western world, is weak and anemic. 
And it's because individual Christians tend to be weak and anemic. And why are we weak and anemic? Because we don't have a steady diet of Jesus Christ. I hate to say that, but you go into many churches today and they will take their text from the Gospel of John and proceed to preach from the New York Times or something like that. But it's not the Gospel. You know, sometimes people will say to me, well, we're moving away and I've discovered that there's no Anglican church. And they said, what should I look for? And I say, well, go for a church that preaches the Gospel. If it's the Baptist church, then go to the Baptist church. If it's the Lutheran church, go to the Lutheran church. If it's the Methodist church, go to the Methodist church. If it happens to be the Catholic church, go to the Catholic church. But go where you're going to get a steady diet of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Because otherwise, you'll become weak, anemic, malnourished. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, look, I'm essential for your life, folks. If you want to be strong, you want to be healthy, you want to make a difference, you need to feed on me daily, and I am uniquely suited for all of you. You ever thought about what it takes to make bread? How you make bread? I mean, from start to finish. There are a couple of steps in the process. First of all, you've got to plant the grain, don't you? Unless somebody plants the seed, there'll never be any grain, and without the grain, there'll never be any bread. But once the grain is planted and it grows, once it's ripe, it has to be cut, doesn't it? It has to be winnowed. It has to be ground into flour. And even then, it's really not edible. It has to be baked in a fire in order to become something that nourishes you and me. Well, I want you to know that is exactly what God did in the person of Jesus Christ. He planted Jesus in this world. We call it the incarnation. The Word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. God planted Christ in this world. And then when he was ripe, the Prince of Glory, the young Prince of Glory is the way we describe it in one of our Good Friday hymns. He was what? He was cut down. He was cut down. He was tortured. He was winnowed, as it were. And he was ground into flour. And he was baked in the flame of the crucifixion. And three days later, he burst forth from the spiced tomb as the one who has the power and the wherewithal to nourish the world for eternal life. Are you feeding on him? It's the only way that you will ever become strong. It's the only way that you will ever find true nourishment that which satisfies your soul, not just for a season, but for all eternity. Jesus said, do not work for the food which does not endure, which is what we so often do. He says, but long for that food which can satisfy you forever, for I am the bread of life. Let us pray. 
Father, we give you thanks and praise for this first of the I Am statements. Grant us the grace to recognize Jesus Christ. We realize that in our own day, there is an increasing famine in the world for the word of God. But the word has become flesh, and he is here in our midst, and we have the privilege of feeding on him. Grant us the grace to see the value of that, to realize that we need to become strong if we're going to make a difference in the world, that we need to feed on Jesus on a daily basis in prayer and in Bible study, that we may become strong people, courageous people, people who can make a difference for him. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.